This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. For the past few years, the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society has hosted an annual keynote address focused on cutting-edge issues in the study of globalization and education. In early March, at the CIES conference held in Atlanta, Fazal Rizvi gave the annual address. Fazal Rizvi is a well-known and prolific scholar on issues related to education and globalization, and was one of the first guests on Fresh Ed in 2015. He is a professor of education at the University of Melbourne, where he joined in 2010 after being based at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where he directed the Global Studies in Education program. Along with Bob Lingard, who also joined Fresh Ed last year, Fazel is the author of a widely read book, Globalizing Education Policy. His keynote address this year was entitled Globalization and Education After Trump and Brexit. Following his remarks, we will hear a few words from Dr. Mario Novelli, who is a professor of political economy of education at the University of Sussex. Enjoy the hour-long address, and I'll be back next week with regular shows. At this conference, uh, there is an elephant in the room sitting, sitting at the table, and yet it is in everyone's mind, but is not being talked about, okay, in an explicit fashion. But in conversations that I have encountered in the corridors, in the coffee shops, uh, it's quite ubiquitous. And that elephant is Trump, okay. And I want to actually say something about why it is that I think it's important to talk about the Trump circus, which has actually taken up huge amount of my time over the last year. I think uh, I calculated on the average I spend something like an hour and an hour and uh, an hour and a half every day thinking, looking at the websites, uh, reading about uh, various newspapers. It has kind of consumed me. And uh, at one level, it might sound as frivolous and uh, as wasting of time, but I think there is something very important that's happening that we should actually analyze a little more carefully using all the theoretical resources that our dis disciplinary practices give us. Uh, and that's why I thought that I would speak quite explicitly about uh, what it means for uh, the Trump victory, means for the, 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 the changing nature of our field, and the kind of questions that it is raising for us that we cannot actually ignore and have to take a position on, and that uh, if uh, uh, if there is a, uh, if if there is any kind of uh, interesting uh, new insights uh, that we can develop from our analysis, then the field would be better for it. Of course, countless number of words have been written over the past year in an attempt to understand the electoral victory of Donald Trump and the Brexit vote, as well as the rise of an aggressive nationalism in mainland Europe and around the world, including Japan, as Kyoto pointed out, and India, as Sangeeta pointed out the other day. Um, most of these commentaries, both academic and popular, in the United States and Britain have focused on the idea of globalization and how these political shifts uh, 
um, uh, uh, we, are, we have witnessed over the past few years represent a backlash against uh, various forms of, uh, and effects of globalization. There is indeed no denying that uh, discontents around globalization have become widespread and widely recognized. Various aspects of globalization have been shown to have not delivered on the kind of promises that were made merely three, three decades ago. Economically, it has been noted that globalization has benefited a very few minority of people, while a large majority have had their lives dispersed, disrupted, and even destroyed. Economic globalization has led to unsustainable and unacceptable levels of inequality. Politically, it has been suggested that the new world order uh, that globalization has spawned has left power in the hands of a very small transnational elite, squeezing out the democratic voices uh, of most of the citizenry, not only in the United States, but around the world. It has led to a democratic deficit in that sense. And culturally, deeply held values and traditions have been upended, especially as a result of growing, growing levels of migration and cultural exchange across national boundaries, so it has been argued. Now, these discontents, to my mind, have raised a number of very important questions about globalization and its future. Are these discontents even justified, we need to ask, or are they simply manufactured and ex exploited by expedient politicians? To what extent are the globalization sentiments new, and what kind of threat do they pose to the existing liberal economic and political order forged after the Second World War? Why should this be a matter of concern to anybody? And indeed, should we not celebrate the demise of globalization? Are we entering a new period of history in which nation states will once again become dominant and perhaps even more strident and aggressive within their borders and across their borders? Is it possible to stop the global flows of people without severely damaging an economy that is now increasingly based on knowledge and cultural exchange, especially the services economy? Are we not already so interconnected and interdependent that ethno-nationalist sentiments belong to another era and are either obsolete or dangerous or indeed both? Are the populist solutions pursued in recent years addressing the discontents of uh, globalization even realistic, especially those that have been proposed by the populist movement representing Brexit and Trump? Do they have the capacity to create a set of conditions in which higher level of uh, economic growth on the one hand and equality and democracy on the uh, other hand even possible? Or are the contradictions of their proposals so great that they are likely to exasperate uh, equality and democracy? These are really quite significant questions for education and educational thinking generally, but, see, uh, but uh, to comparative education in, uh, and international education in particular. For that they hold out the possibility that uh, the comparative may need to be 
yet again rethought, and indeed the international part of comparative and international might also need to be rethought. International in terms of what? For there is now a particular view that uh, international has begun to be defined under the regimes of globalization. Do we need to think about international in new ways uh, becomes a fairly significant question for our field, for this, this association, and indeed for our intellectual work. Now, over the past three years, systems of education have become increasingly uh, interconnected. They have put a premium on sharing of information, ideas, and ideologies, as well as on borrowing of policies and developing them jointly in various regional and international fora. International assessment and accountability technologies have been developed through which performance of national systems are now judged, uh, compared, benchmarked against supposedly common standards. Global mobility of students has become a commonplace phenomenon, creating an industry upon which the financial sustainability of many institutions, especially at the level of higher education, is now inextricably dependent. These developments display a distinctive trend towards convergence. Some 10 years ago, my friend and colleague Stephen Carney coined the phrase educational policy escapes to show how an understanding of nation states and system study of uh, uh, education, to quote, must be informed by understandings of the nature of globalization and especially the new imaginative regimes that it makes possible. Now, given this, their commitment to rearrange the world, the Trump victory and Brexit have the potential to destabilize the educational policyscapes that exist currently. So we need to ask, what kind of uh, policyscapes are we likely to see in the future? And what are the alternatives that are available to us? To, uh, uh, can we imagine a kind of policyscape that does not leave out attention to the global flows of ideas, capital, and indeed, but rearranges them differently than the rationality of neoliberalism suggests. In other words, we need to ask new kind of questions about flows and the scapes that uh, Stephen has written about. Now, we know that uh, uh, the political left has come up with a whole range of criticisms of uh, globalization, both its logic and its consequences. It has, repeated, it has repeatedly been shown that neoliberal processes of globalization uh, are undemocratic and result in uneven and unequal outcomes. In this talk, I want to argue that Trump and Brexiteers have largely embraced the leftist critiques, okay, as paradoxical though it might sound. But they have bolted onto that critique a ethno-nationalist politics. And I think it's the notion of bolting on that I want to pay attention to. How has it been possible for a set of neoliberal ideas to be embraced and perhaps even doubled down on along with an ethno-nationalist politics? We need to figure out this black box of uh, bolting on and how that has been done. So what has happened is it is possible to say that the success of Trump and to lesser extent Brexit 
lies in tying the legitimate concerns of that people legitimately have that their that of their in economic insecurity to cultural issues. In other words, the cultural and the economic have been joined together in a fashion that Marxists did in a particular way, but now we, we might be witnessing uh, uh, being done in a very different way. In other words, there are a whole range of issues that uh, this bolting on is giving rise to. Now, this line of thinking of bolting on, this way of thinking, has obscured how it is the co economic shifts and public policies associated with neoliberal rationality that has played a more decisive role in producing social inequalities and insecurities. Yet both Trump administration and post-practice post Britain have doubled down on neoliberal rationality in a whole range of ways that are now becoming quite evident, and I will talk about that very shortly. Now, I want to argue that this has produced a political terrain that is deeply, deeply contradictory. And as is the case with most contradictions, it provides, provided fissures and gaps in which uh, uh, progressive possi possibilities may lie. And in my view, this, the, the, the new politics that has emerged will indeed find it difficult to reconcile its continuing adherence to neoliberal rationality and its attraction and its appeal towards uh, ethno-nationalism. Those two things are difficult to, re to reconcile in an era of globalization. And yet, the efforts are going to be made to reconcile them. And the much of the trouble that might arise may come in the attempts to bolt on. And I think that's the thing that we need to pay the most attention on. Now, for, for more than three decades, scholars and activists uh, <coughs> on the political left have shown how globalization of economic uh, activities has had uh, negative e effects on marginalized communities, both within and across the nations. While uh, in some countries, such as China and Korea, globalization has arguably created new opportunities. In others, it has exasperated various types of social stratification, including with respect to class, gender, race, religion, age, and the urban rural divide. Even in those countries that have benefited from globalization, gaps in people's life chances have widened. In China and in many parts of Asia, their global cities, their shining cities, have enabled some to enjoy the lifestyles of the advanced economies, while in rural areas, the benefits of globalization have been scarce, if not entirely absent. The stories of suicides amongst farmers in India, for example, have now become legendary. So while in Europe and the United States, many believe that the process of globalization have led to the export of their jobs and wealth to Asia, within Asia, the picture is starkly much more complex and uneven. In Europe and in the United States, the industrial cities have had to carry much of the burden of global economic transformations. The combined forces of technologization of work and globalization of production have produced the availability of, uh, have reduced the availability of employee that was once plentiful. Employment rates have soared, forcing people to move 
to find new jobs. Uh, people have had to train for these jobs. And yet, the privatization regimes have made sure that this training is provided at cost to the people themselves. Okay, they have had to make investment that many indeed cannot afford. At the same time, the welfare provisions have been cut as governments have either been able to afford, not been able to afford them, or have an ideological objection to them. They have assumed that state subsidies and programs frequently encourage inefficiencies and make people dependent on handouts. There has been a relentless ideological campaign that has celebrated the logic of the markets, suggesting that the individuals should be responsible for themselves and their own lives and their own futures, uh, no matter how disrupted they are by forces outside their control. While most people's capacity to enjoy the various benefits uh, of, uh, of globalization, like the availability of vast array of consumer goods, has declined, they are constantly subjected to lifestyle choices that are often beyond their grasp. We need to better understand the logic of consumption. The mass advertising campaigns are designed to elicit desire for goods and services that only few can access. There's clearly a growing gap between those, those who can afford the cosmopolitan tastes and those who are left to simply fantasize about them. As Zygmunt Baum, Bauman, in his very famous article, Tourist and Vagabond, pointed out, globalization has given rise to new forms of social differentiation around what he called consumptive desires between those who can realize these desires and those who are left outside the gates wishing that they could, often with accompanying anger and envy. This qualitative account of social inequality, of course, parallels uh, um, the quantitative accounts, such as that provided by Piketty in recent, in recent years, with global um, levels of wealth and inequality, income inequality, under the conditions of globalization, but even before that, shown to be growing. While what, what both quantitative and qualitative analysis indicate is that economic inequalities have always had cultural dimensions and political outcomes. Uh, um, the Trump and Brexit campaigns have tried to put another, another spin on that connection. Indeed, Guy Standing has probably done much more work in trying to understand this relationship and has elaborated the nature of the, these out, political outcomes of globalization of economy in and through cultural formations of various kinds. He refers to a class of people badly affected by the processes of globalization as the precariat. If you haven't read that book, it is well worth having a look at. It's polemical and read, easy, easy, easy to read. The emerging precariat class, Standing argues, is, this was, uh, his paper came, his book came out in 2010, is a heterogeneous group, an amalgamation of diff several different social groups that include young educated people and those who have fallen out of the old style industrial working class. The precariat is, however, not only suffering from job insecurity, but have also got a whole range of cultural concerns about their identity. They feel that recent public policies have diminished the cultural advantages in the economic space that they once enjoyed. 
and that they have lost democratic control over the destinies that they had assumed they once had, which has been transferred onto people who have been able to make noises around identity politics. Um, well, before Trump and Brexit, Standing had warned that this group was politically volatile and dangerous, not only because it was internally divided, but also because its members are susceptible to the siren calls of political extremism, including the ideologies promoted by the politically expedient politicians uh, who were not reluctant to stoke fears by creating a cultural chasm within the marginalized and, uh, and, and disadvantaged communities. Thus, we have witnessed in recent years the villainization of migrants, of refugees, of indigenous people, and other vulnerable groups. The standings precariat are convinced that their cultural and political voice, loss of their political and cultural voice is largely due to globalization, which has undermined the conventional democratic institutions in their view, especially as power has shifted from national self-determination to global institutions. Their assumption is that supra-state agencies and regimes, both global and regional, like EU, have created substantial democratic deficits for them, okay, as uh, the political authority of nation has undermined. The global markets, global communication systems, and the incipient global civil society, they're convinced, has weakened their state, not anyone's state, their state. The main beneficiaries of these developments have been, in their view, have been the transnational elite, for whom greater space is now available for cultural enjoyments and democratic activity outside the public governance institutions. According to William Robinson, for example, as stakeholders and globally mobile people, the transnational elite control the operations of the emerging global institutions and communication systems and are able to steer the state in their favor. Now, some of these accounts of globalization and its discontents are not new. Earlier on, in, the, in a very widely read book, Globalization, Jean Soholte showed how globalization led to three forms of INS, I-N with a bracket, insecurity, inequality, and undemocracy. In other words, security, not only ecological, economic, cultural, and psychological, but also of other kinds inequality of various kinds, as well as undemocracy. Uh, um, Manfred Steger, in his little book, uh, has also shown globalization benefits to be unevenly and unequally distributed. Around the turn of the century, no less than three books emerged with the title Globalization and its Discontents, one by Joseph Stieglitz, one by Saskia Sassen, and one by an author whose name I forget. Um, deliberately. <laughs> um, each of these books suggests that global processes and their current forms were unsustainable, and sooner or later they will create conditions of considerable political volatility. And I think their predictions are coming to, 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 to show themselves to be true. In response, Sassen proposed a set of radical alternatives to global capitalism, such as many of them, emphasized, uh, advocated by the Occupy movement. Stiglitz, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, pre presented a very different way forward, re 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 emphasizing the need to reform international agencies 
such as the World Bank, not surprisingly, and IMF, and a greater responsibility of the nation states to protect the vulnerable. Now, these, these criticisms are familiar enough to all of us. In ways that might appear some, somewhat ironic, political movements around Brexit and Trumpet have largely embraced most of these criticisms of globalization that the political left had advanced. They've accepted, for example, that globalization has produced unacceptable levels of social inequality, that its practices are fundamentally undemocratic and have led to various insecurities. They are critical of the ways in which globalization has destabilized communities, labor markets, and national norms. They are mournful of the jobs that no longer exist and of declining education, economic opportunities and prospects. They have questioned the political legitimacy of supra and regional agencies, uh, such as European Union, especially what they regard as their overstretch into aspects of life they, that, they, that they believe are best handled either at the local or the national or indeed at the individual level. In other words, uh, their individualism is assumed to be threatened. They have assumed that the new world order is uh, to be inher inherently unfavorable to their interests and have demanded a new deal in which global trade is a national is in national rather than corporate interest. Now, as compelling as these concerns are, both Trump and Brexiteer, however, bolted on the term that I've used before, onto a new politics, new cultural politics of ethno-nationalism. They have captured and exploited the rhetoric of those who are suspicious of global migration and have decided to hold the migrants themselves responsible for many of the infliction of the economically vulnerable people across the communities. They consider the ease with which people are supposedly able to move across national borders to be a major threat to their job prospects and the kind of, the, the, the kind of good life they imagine they once had. They argue that globalization has undermined their cultural and religious tradition and is, facing, is forcing them to accept the values of diversity and cultural exchange and uh, uh, against the wishes uh, that, uh, against their wishes and their interests. They're fearful of cultural heterogeneity, even if the numbers of immigrants and refugees in their communities is relatively small, as pointed out in Apudarai's book, uh, Fear of Small Numbers. Their fear is of the cultural other, whose demands and rights, demand for rights and privileges that many of us in CIS make, uh, they are afraid might compete with their. In other words, a situation of competition has, some, has been set up in relation to, uh, uh, to the rights and privileges, uh, arising out of very different set of considerations. One of them, national and privilege origin, and the other one, uh, one of uh, uh, human rights of a generalized kind. Of course, many of these fears are unfounded. The success Trump and Brexiteers have, however, had is in capturing these fears into a relatively persuasive narrative to which large proportion of their electorates can relate. In this way, the Trump victory and Brexit represent a story of political mobilization. And I think we need to understand better political mobilization, successfully converted into a populist movement. Now, populist movements are, of course, as old as politics itself. 
there can be both right-wing and left-wing, but only some reach a critical mass of power, while others remain on the sidelines. Populism is best viewed as a political strategy to mobilize people around a loosely connected set of ideas. Now, loosely connected set of ideas is an important phrase there. There is no claim to coherence. There is simply a claim to something that is linked to sentiments and feelings. It is not constituted by a coherent set of concepts, but various discursive assemblages that are grounded in affect and emotions and are often based on a sharp differentiation between us and them, our feelings and their feelings. A loose and shared characterization of enemies is often also necessary for populism to get political purpose, as is a state of victimhood requiring the construction of an exploitative elite who is in control which and who needs to be fought against. Thus, the populist rhetoric surrounding the Trump victory and Brexit has tentative threads that are lumped together into an ideologically convenient fashion. Not an ideologically coherent fashion, ideologically convenient fashion, without any serious attempt to ensure coherence across its claims. These threads include a complaint about global rules of trade and how it had allegedly disadvantaged Americans and the British ahead of others who have benefited from it. Allied to this is the assumption that national authority and power has shifted to global institutions. It is assumed that these transformations, this transfer, has adversely affected us, the American and the British industries, the workers, who other countries have been able to take advantage of them. And because their leaders have displayed inaptitude in negotiating better deals. Okay, inaptitude in better deals. So a claim about inaptitude is fairly central to their logic. It is asserted that global corporations and managers are the most directly direct beneficiary of uh, the political weaknesses of our leaders at the national level and they have been able to dupe and transcend uh, the weaker entities such as us. In other words, uh, at, uh, you, vict you hold yourself to become a victim of uh, uh, the follies that are not necessarily done by others, but they are also done by us to ourselves, and hence the political mobilization. Along with this focus on the effects of global trade, the populism of both Trump, uh, 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 populism of Trump, for example, has been highly successful in linking economic anxieties to cultural concerns. Therefore, it is that it is suggested that global economy has uh, has enabled unfettered flows of not only capital but also people across national boundaries. A, a discourse of losing control over our borders has become a rallying cry as prejudices against immigrants uh, and the refugees have intensified. In America, it is assumed that jobs are being lost to the cultural others. They're not only being lost, but they're being lost to somebody. You know? uh, it's not simply a loss, it's a loss to somebody. Uh, okay. Either within the nation or elsewhere. And that they can only come back if the global flows of people are more rigorously controlled, or better still, stopped altogether. At the same time, a powerful narrative of national security 
has emerged in which Islam and Muslims are assumed to be the major culprits. Despite their small numbers, other minorities too have, have been, are assumed to have the potential to dilute cult local cultural and religious traditions, with Anglo-American values becoming undermined by a globally homogenizing culture on the one hand, an unjustifiable tolerance of foreign cultural practices on the other. That is, we have taken tolerance too far, too far, underpinned by the ideologies of diversity and the multiculturalism and that globalization has promoted, supposedly. Now, this, this, this populism thus ties issues of economic decline to a set of cultural factors in a way that appears seamless to its supporters anywhere. It presents a most diffuse and often contradictory account of discontents. Its uh, success lies in its capacity to bring together under one ideological umbrella a range of often conflicting ideas. It thus seemingly managed to satisfy a diversity of political interests and cultural prejudices, from the overtly xenophobic sentiments to economically nationalist sentiments. What it does not do, however, is consider in any serious way the main tenets of neoliberalism that have arguably contributed more to economic distress of the precariat than the cultural concerns. In other words, there has been an absence of analysis as well as foregrounding of analysis. And that is deliberate, as I will show very shortly. The injustices of globalization are thus assumed to be inherent in the global flows of people and not necessarily global flows of capital. The excesses of global institutions and in transnational elite rather than in the neoliberal approaches to the new geography, new scalar logic, if you like. The failures of the nation state are assumed, moreover, to lie in not getting a favorable deal in trade, rather than in the contradictions inherent in the, 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 the system of uh, trading that uh, World Trade Organization, for example, represents. In this way, the populist rhetoric of Trump masks the fact that global interconnectivity may not be the problem afflicting the American precariat as such, but the neoliberal terms in which interconnectivity is defined and enacted. In connectivity is not the problem, but the ways in which it's defined. Trump is a devotee, of course, as we know, um, the, uh, the main creed of neoliberalism. And in particular, its assumptions regarding the ways in which societies and their institutions are best organized and governed. He continues to stress the importance of free markets, finding their policy expressions in the ideas of deregulation of industries and capital flows, the radical reduction in welfare uh, state provisions, and the privatizing of private goods and services. He assumes human beings to be largely motivated by, as indeed he is, uh, to economic self-interest. In other words, he's projecting himself to other, onto others, always seeking to strengthen their competitive advantage within the markets. Trump arguments are thus located in a system of thought, a distinctive mode of reason that assumes what Wendy Brown, in a wonderful book that she has wrote two years ago, refers to the econom as economization of subjects. The neoliberal rationality imagines that economics can remake 
other fields of existence in and through its norms, its terms, and its matrices. In this logic, human beings are figured as human capital across all spheres of life, including education. This line of thinking is consistent with my own work with Bob Lingard uh, on neoliberal imaginary, through which people try to make sense of their identity and their social relations. As an imaginary, neoliberalism suggests both the ways in which we need to interpret the world, imagine the ways in which, and, and, and imagine the ways in which it should be. In other words, the normative and the descriptive are fused together. As Brown puts it, within neoliberal rationality, human capital is both our is and our ought, what we are said to be, what we should be, and what the rationality makes us into through its norms, through its construction of its environments. What Trump and his supporters refuse to see, however, is that these norms are blind to uh, the social outcomes that it has directly produced uh, in, uh, in, in entrenching uh, economic inequality. When everywhere and uh, when everyone and everything and everywhere is defined in terms of capital investment and appreciation, the notion of public good necessarily loses its, uh, its, its significance. Everyone, including the government, is no longer identified with the public, but is increasingly viewed as merely another economic actor amongst many others. As economic actors, corporations feel obliged to work with their shareholders rather than for the community at large. They demand greater tax breaks so that they can compete in the market more effectively and efficiently. It is not in their interest to agree to minimum wage, for example, because such egalitarian measures invariably de disadvantage them in the market and invariably cut into their profits that they're expected to make for their shareholders. Now, if this is so, then social inequality and discontent are outcome of unequal distribution of wealth within nation state and its public policies rather than global processes uh, and global interconnectivity as such. As uh, Jack Ma, the owner of Alibaba, one of the world's largest companies, said in January at the, at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, um, that contrary to the popular view, the United States has benefited disproportionately from globalization of trade in industries such as telecommunications, tourism, uh, and retail services. But, he argues, it has not used its profits wisely, preferring to spend it on military misadventures and giving tax cuts to the rich instead of looking after the dislocated members of its society, dislocated because of globalization. The problem, he has noted, is not globalization of trade, but the failure of the United States to pursue policies that are more redistributive, preferring policies that are punitive and uncaring. Jack Ma's analysis, although he comes from a different world view than to mine, is nonetheless underlies the very complicated relationship between globalization on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other. In other words, there is a hyphen between neoliberal globalization, and we need to actually understand not only neoliberal and globalization, but also the hyphen. Okay, that to me is fairly important way to this complication, this difficult kind of relationship 
is further evident in the realization that neoliberalism is in fact a product of Anglo-American political priorities and political preferences. The neoliberal definition of globalization, the hyphenation that I've talked about, is an outcome of the American post-war efforts to remake, remake the world in its own image. The Marshall Plan on all those things. Indeed, it is the United States, far more than any other country, that has had the decisive voice in determining the content of the policies and procedures that have accompanied neoliberal globalization. Its say remains dominant in multilateral organizations, such as the World Bank, the OECD, IMF, and it has played a powerful role in shaping the content of the rules of the World Trade Organization, which uh, Mao seeks to enforce much to the chagrin of Trump and his supporters. In other words, uh, having made the rule, uh, United States seeing, says that those rules were not fair to us, and they need to be even fairer than they are already uh, in terms of uh, the benefits. Now, similarly, United Kingdom was not a bystander in forging the Schengen Agreement, not a bystander that encouraged the mobility of people without visa across countries within the European Union uh, in the Schengen area, uh, not European Union, largely on the basis of its earlier conviction that the mobility of people and capital across Europe uh, was fundamental to its economic growth, its economic productivity and prosperity. In other words, uh, they have changed their mind about Schengen. If these arguments are valid, then ethno-nationalism promoted by both Trump and Brexit is in fact a ruse, masking the contradictions of neoliberal rationality, as well as its impact on the life chances of the marginalized. What is clear is that unless progressive redistributive policies are introduced within the United States, no attempt by Trump administration at reordering the nation's cultural politics can be productive in improving the economic prospects of its citizens for a better life. Holding immigrants and refugees responsible for unemployment and deteriorating uh, labor conditions and fueling the fires of Islamophobia may play well with certain sections of American and British society, but they're unlikely to lead to either economic productivity or to social cohesion and community harmony that uh, are so fundamental to ensuring capital accumulation and financial stability, as uh, Roger and I discussed uh, off had pointed out some 30 years ago. Improvements in the working conditions of people cannot occur by blaming globalization as such, but attending to the contradictions and the definitions of globalization and the neoliberal rationality within the terms of which the hegemonic, its hegemonic conception is currently defined. And, and yet, far from recognizing the problems associated with it, the Trump administration has doubled down, which is an American phrase, not used in Australia all that much, uh, but doubled down on the assumption of neoliberal rationality. It has promised to cut taxes in unprecedented ways. It, in all likelihood, it will attempt to balance the budget by, uh, by cutting back on expenditure on social programs insofar as it can. It has indicated a determination to stimulate the economy by an expansive program of deregulation and privatization. Uh, Trump has appointed a cabinet that is wedded to the interests of the big end of town, 
or to a more ideologically rigid form of capitalism, if you like. Some members of the Trump cabinet are hostile to the goals of the very agencies they've been asked to oversee, as well as to the various forms of unionization. The idea of minimum wage has effectively been ruled out at the federal level. In short, the Trump administration in displaying a strong commitment to neoliberal and perhaps even stronger commitment to neoliberal rationality than the Obama and earlier regimes. Applied initially to the operations of the state, but then extended to the renegotiation of treaties and international trade. Though in ways not as muscular, the British government too is similarly com committed to the application of neoliberal principles to state policies and, uh, and practices. Even it has decided as it has decided to go it alone outside the purview of the, of the European Union. In education, the Trump commitment to neo, neoliberal rationality could not be clearer with the appointment as his Secretary of State, Betty DeVos, one of the most ideologically driven in recent history, with no experience in running a public system or state university and shaping statewide education policy. Her signature issue, school voucher, is based on her commitment to a free market ideology in education. She argues, and I quote, let the education do dollars flow the child instead of forcing the child to flow the dollars. People deserve choices and options, and we know about $20 billion that has been allocated to pursue that policy. As a former chairwoman of the Republican Party in Michigan and a major donor to the party, she has supported various policies and programs of voucher um, privatization and deregulation charter schools. DeVos argues the charter schools uh, invariably improve the quality of provisions and represent a way of providing greater access to educational opportunity to the marginalized and poorer communities. In other words, she does have a view of equity defined in terms of access um, for those who can afford it. Neither of these claims is, uh, is supported by evidence, however. A recent review of research on public uh, meta review of research on public funded private school in the United States indicates no clear advantage or, or imp imp improvement in academic achievement among students attending private schools. According to Chris and Sarah Lubinsky, the evidence about charter school effectiveness is equally mixed. More disturbing is the finding that uh, uh, private schools are more economically and racially segregated than public schools and that they underrepresent students with special needs. Furthermore, poor, poorly funded schools are less likely to provide access to new technologies, science laboratories, secure environments, and so on and so on. In the end, they exasperate cultural tensions as well as, cultural, uh, as, well as social inequalities, perpetuating social conflict, social division, social segregation, without doing anything to minimize level of economic inequalities and despair. In his book, uh, um, my friend David Hirsch, The End of Public School, the, the book's title, has shown how privatization policies also undermine democracy. He argues uh, that uh, public schools were created as learning communities that supported the development of trusting and caring relationships. The very opposite of the world of competition and uh, deals that uh, uh, Trump and his supporters committed to. Yet in schools where students are viewed to, as customers and parents as shareholders, this, this democratic function of education is necessarily diluted as students are prepared for a world of competition. In the end, the idea of privatization 
grounded in neoliberal rationality, uh, projects a different view of society, as our award-winning book suggests, <laughs> as shown, in which uh, individuals are encouraged to compete for scarce resources and in which the market defines modes of social relationship. The ideas of democracy and equality are not abandoned, but are re-articulated in market terms. The concept of uh, democracy becomes largely representative rather than participatory, symbolic rather than substantive, while equality is redefined in terms of in entitlement, suggesting that individuals deserve what uh, they have earned rather than what they might share. This, of course, really points to the conditions for social tension that is partly, partly is, uh, is, is supposed to be uh, expressed in Trump victory, but is likely to uh, make it much more extensive and much more uh, wide-ranging. It's hard to see how the doubling down on neoliberal rationality can bring ben any benefits to the precariat class in the United States or indeed in Britain. Nor is it clear how their decision to go it alone and put nation first, likely in the wrong, long run to be product productive. In education, policymaking in the United States has seldom been keen to draw on elsewhere, as has been not un, it, has, it has not been reluctant to promote, promote its vision of education throughout the world through development aid programs and its active guidance of global agencies such as the OECD. Trump's national agenda is unlikely to change this to any great extent. And since, as a strong state, his promise to go it alone is, has an appeal for his supporters. However, what his, his, his prescription for others is likely to be much more dangerous. The consequences of, of Brexit, however, are more serious and more direct for educational institutions in the UK. As Susan Robertson and others have pointed out, the support they receive, for the support that Britain receives from, for academic and student mobility and exchange programs from EU are likely to be severely diminished, as indeed might the funding for programs of collaborative research. It will also lose an important forum in which educational uh, ideas are explored and debated and programs of educational reform compared and benchmarked. The financial benefits it derives from international students in its universities will also decline. The question arises then, then what kind of uh, policyscape might emerge in in United States and Britain against these political conditions and against this particular view of the contradictions that I have defined, uh, in which, uh, which neoliberal assumptions are doubled down on. But they have not abandoned um, uh, globalization, but at the same time have embraced ethnic, uh, ethnic uh, national, ethnic, uh, ethno-nationalism. So ethno-nationalism, some idea of global intervention, not entirely abandoned, as well as uh, uh, neoliberal assumptions together forge a very, very toxic mix indeed. Certainly it's possible for US and UK to promote a more rigorous nationalist regimes and close their borders to refugees and mig uh, migrants who do not serve their immediate interests. And this appears, of course, likely. Also possible is to imagine uh, further re restrictions on flows of goods and services. Perhaps also, although li less likely, capital. In education, it's possible to imagine a United States in which its traditional commitment to uh, multiculturalism, human rights education, internationalization, and so on might uh, be wound back, promoting instead a curriculum 
that underlines the importance of religious and patriotic values. Indeed, Bess DeVos has already indicated her interest in encouraging schools, both private and public, to return to these Judeo-Christian traditions. Other countries might be required to follow these uh, trends. Yet it's hard to imagine educational institutions anywhere turning their backs on an era of nation states once again, separating themselves from global forces and opportunities. There are some aspects of global interconnectivity that now appear ontologically fixed. Developments in information and technologies are not going away, for example, which have rendered in inevitable the global flows of ideas, ideologies, and, uh, and images. They have intensified transnational connectedness and awareness of such intensification. They have in disembedded social relations from local context uh, and interactions, leading to accelerated change through time-space compression. Most communities have already become transformed through the global flows of people. Cultural diversity, exchange, and hybridity have become a fact of life in both the United States and Britain and cannot, be, cannot simply be wished away. These things are grounded in our communities and it's much more difficult to pull them back from, pull back from them than, than is often assumed. The new economies are increasingly centered on services economies, such as industry, such industries as tourism, education, retail, and these are predicated fundamentally now on globalized exchange. Australia's economy is 70% services. 80% of that 70% is in terms of global exchange of one kind, including education, including tourism, and so on. So in other words, global exchange has become part and parcel of the composition of our economies. And I think that needs to be recognized the transfer from service, uh, goods to services industries has been significant, but I think its cultural significance is often under-recognized. At the same time, there is now a deep awareness amongst the young, in particular, that many of the serious problems facing humanity, such as the environment, are global requiring them. In other words, there are reasons to be pessimistic, but there are also reasons to realize that there are grounded conditions, there are ontological realities, that will be difficult to bound back from. These historical, ontological realities, I, I want to say, make it difficult uh, to imagine a world without global interconnectivity and continuing exchange. Many aspects of globalization are here to stay. The idea of post-globalization therefore appears to be something of a mirage. The issue now is uh, how it, how not whether there will be some aspects of global interconnectivity, but how these might be defined. In other words, uh, how the terms of our global interdependence and our global interconnectivity might be couched. This, to my mind, is conceptual and political, but also, most fundamentally, a moral question. Okay, As we have noted over the past few decades, the terms of the global economic, political, and cultural exchange have been framed in neoliberal terms. Neoliberal terms prescribes a morality as well as it prescribes an economic. In other words, it prescribes the way human beings should relate to each other. That suggests to me that we need to actually be careful not to abandon 
moral discourse uh, and uh, really not look at uh, the moral concerns of our field um, uh, and not simply its conceptual and its empirical aspects. Globalization has not only been about material structures of power, but it's also constituted and is, con is it, it has also constituted and is constituted by a particular way of interpreting and representing the world, a particular way of forming and forging the social of the social exchange. And in particular, uh, in, the, in that sense, it involves representing the world. In short, a common sense. One of, the, as Stuart Hall pointed out many years ago, one of the unexpected benefits of uh, Trump victory and Brexit might be that they have served to unmask the common sense generated by neoliberal, neoliberal rationality. They have shown how the benefits of neoliberal uh, globalization have been unevenly, unevenly distributed and how it has dis disempowered communities. They have pointed to the new need to develop a new uh, common sense. Where might this common sense come from? That is the question that we need to ask and that our field should set itself the challenge of working on. While such a common sense cannot simply abandon globalization, uh, the ontological realities that, sorry, the neoliberal common sense cannot simply abandon globalization, the ontological realities that it now represents. It is possible to interrogate further the neoliberal assumptions in which the hegemonic common sense has been framed of globalization as a way of better understanding its effects and its discontents. The challenge before us is to explore ways of rescuing globalization from the clutches of neoliberalism. The question that uh, keeps many of us awake, I am sure. Uh, imagining a conception which is not wedded to its uh, deeply ideological structure. But nor does it fall back into, as Trump and Brexit do, into dangerous nativism, into a common sense uh, in which uh, nativism, along with neoliberalism, is trying to define a globalization that is deeply, deeply contradictory, but deeply, deeply dangerous as well. For the danger with this kind of ethno-nationalism that Trump and Brexit advocate is that it's likely to produce a cultural politics that is based on a permanent state of fear, resentment, and conflict. But not, nor is it able to deliver the economic and social benefit that it falsely promises. An alternative to neoliberal globalization must begin with the realization of a paradox that, as David Held points out, the collective issues we must grapple with are of growing cross-border extensity and intensity. Yet the means of addressing these are local and national. Okay. If it must recognize that the world is multipolar and that power exists in the world and that we are going to be pulled here and there everywhere, where some states are strong in almost all respects, while others are not. The strongest states, such as the United States and Britain, even with their weakened conditions, are now tempted to go it alone and put themselves first. But the problem with this neoliberal logic of competition, but problem with the neoliberal the logic of competition is that in an increasingly interdependent world, this does not only harm the weaker state, but also the weaker members of weaker sections of the dominant, the, if we like, stronger states as well. In other words, it has a double banger effect. This suggests that while nation states retain their importance and will invariably pursue their own interests, this pursuit should be uh, accompanied 
by an ethical outlook of care towards members of their community, but of others as well. This demands a new rationality, a new way of defining and interacting and understanding interconnectivity, a new way of prescribing global ex exchange, a new way of defining interdependence. Interdependence is here to stay, the terms of which are still to be yet remain to be negotiated. Thank you very much. Thanks, Fazal. It's really a, a great privilege to, to be able to make some comments uh, about your work. I was thinking whilst you were speaking that about 20... Uh, I was thinking um, whilst you were speaking that I think about 20 years ago I walked into Leon Tickley's office in Birmingham, uh, the University of Birmingham, and started a master's program. And I think that was the first time I got introduced to the ideas of globalization and education. And later on, uh, joining uh, the University of Bristol and working with Susan Robertson and Roger Dale, I feel like I had a privileged entry into what is a very interesting field, a very interesting SIG that we now have, and also a very interesting and I think quite um, promiscuous and curious field uh, that isn't afraid of exploring different disciplines and the intersections between international relations and geography and sociology and politics and also it's also a serious field I think that the globalization and education work that's done really tries to address some of those issues that really matter to people uh, in the real world issues around inequalities and public and private and uh, many of the challenges that we face so I feel uh, in a sense happy that I can recognize all the references that you used in your text um, and grateful uh, for those uh, that guided me. Um, I think that my discussion is not a critique. Uh, what I think it is is the beginning of a dialogue and the dialogue I think has already begun and begun through Will Brem and the fantastic um, spaces that he's created uh, over the last uh, last year, the many uh, podcasts that have been broadcast, also the discussions that have been going on over the last few days around, you know, what is going on and uh, where does the state fit in? And I think that I hope that that carries on uh, over the next over the next years. So I think that I'm going to start uh, the discussion um, with the question about the relationship between neoliberalism and authoritarianism and cultural conservatism. Because there's a sense that a lot of the work that we have done over the years, for the last 20 odd years, has been about economic neoliberalism and the rolling back of the uh, state uh, in uh, education and in broader society. And there is also a sense that punctuated periods of neoliberalism have been deeply conservative and authoritarian. They're not all Trudeaus. They're also Pinochets and Thatchers who were deeply conservative in their outlook, deeply homophobic, deeply sexist, 
So I think that there is a continuity in the neoliberal project that maybe we haven't picked up. And I almost feel at the moment like there is a second rollback going on. You know, thinking about Jamie Peck's work on rolling back the state. And in a sense, we feel like the democratic state is being rolled back now. A lot of the civil rights, the gains of the civil rights movement from the 1960s are being rolled back. The right of transgender communities, gay communities, black communities, uh, Muslim communities. All of these people are under attack at the moment. And so, in a sense, you kind of feel like this is the second coming of some of those. They're saying, like, we've done the economic, now we've moved on to the cultural. And actually, if you go to, um, and I, I don't advocate everybody to read this, um, but if you read the 2,000-page dossier that the Norwegian neo-Nazi Breivik released on the day when he carried out these massacres, he talked an awful lot in that about cultural Marxism, which had dominated our societies and brought in all these liberal ideas that we had to eliminate from societies and bring back. And was a lot of the stuff that he was writing was about multiculturalism. A lot of it is uh, public discourse now in many circles in the UK and the US. And so I think that there's something about that that is not, um, maybe is a contradiction, but I don't think it's precisely the way that you have explained that. Um, and I think that uh, the second thing I would like to say is that, in a sense, the way that you present ethno-nationalism um, is as a kind of retreatist, nativist project. But it seems to me that it's also a global project. Because if you look at, uh, for example, uh, Nigel Farage's frequent visits to the US after Brexit and the discovery over the last week of the amount of money that uh, UKIP was getting uh, from the US to support the Brexit campaign, there seems to be interconnections uh, Bannon apparently has been uh, um, advising uh, Nigel Farage, and Nigel Farage has now begun a career as a radio presenter in London as a part of this kind of cultural process of winning the debate for the right. You know, so you know this Gramscian debate that's gone on a bit in the in in the um, in the sessions this week. I think is really pertinent, but we shouldn't think that the left is the only ones that are interested in Gramsci and building hegemony. Uh, the right is also. So I think there is an issue around a global project of nativism uh, that has its links and has its broader objectives. Um, I think that, that the third thing that, that that leads me to is that, um, and it's, this is a positive one, uh, I think that um, Trump uh, brings people together, brings a lot of subjects together in disliking Trump. So you've got a whole range of communities that are being persecuted now. Uh, and there is a potential to build a uni unified movement. But that needs a pedagogy that recognizes difference in unity. And how do you develop that? Because we've already seen that immediately after um, the Brexit, uh, um, immediately after the Trump vote, um, we also had a kind of uh, Trump march in London uh, women's march against Trump, similar to the one that was held in the U.S. And it ended up in two marches because it was led by white feminists 
who excluded black feminists from the organizing committee of the march, and it ended up in a split. And it was all around issues around who has the right to talk about the issue, who has the right to be included, and who has the right to be excluded. And I think that if you're going to build a movement now um, that is broad enough to start to challenge some of these issues, then we need a pedagogy of respect in the spaces that we organize in to help that. And I think that that's fundamentally an educational phenomena. It's about trying to find the conditions under which people feel comfortable to come together and organize together and feel that their issues are being taken seriously and they're not just a vehicle for somebody else's objectives. So I think that that's important. And I think that the second thing around the cultural dimension and resistance is that it's a very educational thing. I think that this whole cultural uh, uh, rollback is penetrating the schools already. I was reading in the paper uh, yesterday that um, there's an attempt by an Arkansas uh, Republican to eliminate Howard Zinn's works from the national, uh, from the curriculum. Uh, in the UK, we're being told in the national curriculum not to teach books from foreign authors, uh, that we should be promoting English authors. So there is a real sense that um, teachers in universities, in schools, in kindergartens, need to hold their ground and need to uh, challenge a lot of these areas um, because the, the ground is moving very quickly under our feet and we can lose uh, many more of these. And that's why I think that the, the whole uh, challenge that I think we face in relation to that is that many people are kind of nostalgic for Tony Blair or Hillary Clinton. And the thing is, is that I don't think we fully analyze the fact that it was many of their politics that have produced the reason why the white working class communities in many parts of the world do not have any faith in their so-called representatives. Uh, the, uh, in, in particular, in, in, in the UK, we see Tony Blair having made millions entering into Parliament and then leaving Parliament after having made millions. So it's little surprise that the left has little credibility. So I think that you know, we're in a kind of period where the center has kind of collapsed and either you build an alternative and a more radical project or you, you I don't think that you, you can have much of a chance of building an alternative. Um, and I think that the last point I wanted to raise, uh, Fuzzle, was that there is a danger of the kind of focus on Brexit and uh, what's going on in the US or... Um, forgetting about the many other places around the world that are facing massive struggles and stress. Thousands of academics have lost their jobs in Turkey over the last year. Um, people have been dismissed. People have been imprisoned. Uh, the situation in the Philippines, the situation in South Africa of students and the police violence. There is so many different things. So I think that we have to counter nativism with solidarity, international solidarity, as well as, well as internal solidarity. And that means building those links and solidarities amongst our colleagues and engaging with them in, in those ways. So I think that, you know, there is a big, a big potential of a range of things that, that we can do, both in an, as an academic field, but also as a field of practice that many of us occupy as teachers, as education workers, as community activists that we really need to move forward in. Thank you.
Basil Rizvi is a professor of education at the University of Melbourne. You can check out freshedpodcast.com where a YouTube video of the address is posted. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed. Fresh Ed's producers are Sherry Yang and Yuval Devere. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It really does help. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.